0: good morning. Isn't it good to be in the house of the Lord, to meet with our brothers and sisters in Christ? We're going to be in the book of James this morning, um, looking at the first part of chapter two. So if you haven't done so already, go ahead and turn there. And I, I believe there should be some children's pages in the back if anyone needs those. I um, Would you stand, if you're willing and able, in honor of the reading of God's word? James, chapter 2, starting in verse 1. My brothers and sisters, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. For if a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring and is dressed in bright clothes, and a poor man in dirty clothes also comes in, And you pay special attention to the one who is wearing the bright clothes and say, you sit here in a good place. And you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down by my footstool. You have made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives. Listen, my Beloved brothers and sisters, did God not choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Is it not the rich who oppress you and personally drag you into court? Do they not blaspheme the good name by which you have been called? If, however, you are fulfilling the royal law according to the scripture, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as violators. For whoever keeps the whole law, yet stumbles in one point, has become guilty of all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but do murder, you have become a violator of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of freedom. For judgment will be merciless to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, your word, oh, your word, Lord, it's sharper than any two-edged sword. These words sting us, Lord. They, they prick at our hearts. Would you give us wisdom now and understanding? By your Holy Spirit, convict us where we need correction. But would you also encourage and strengthen us, O God, all that we might live out our faith in you in a manner that is pleasing to you and that honors and glorifies you. We come, Lord, in the name of Jesus, and we ask that it may be so even amen please be seated the book of James compels us to live our lives in ways that are consistent with our faith in just 108 little verses James gives us 59 commands or exhortations about how we should live we're given practical counsel on issues that face us every day, issues like trials, socioeconomic status, favoritism, social justice, the tongue, boasting, worldliness, prayer, illness, and more. James encourages us to self-assess, to examine ourselves in order to test ourselves to see just where we're at in living out our faith. In chapter 1, we were presented with several of these tests, how we respond to trials, how we respond to temptation, and how we respond to the word of God. The last verses of chapter 1 serve to sum up that first chapter and introduce the second chapter. Now, when we were in James about a month ago, I think it was, Luke left us with three signs of true religion three elements of pure Christianity. And those those come from verses 26 and 27 of chapter 1, and they can be paraphrased like this. Words that are controlled, hands that help those in need, and a heart that is guarded from the pollution of the world. Many of the people of James' day could profess sound doctrine and they regularly attended church, they, they sounded good, and they looked good. But James knew that the proof of their religion was in their behavior. And isn't that true for us today? He could just as well have been talking to us. Now, James is going to unpack these marks of true religion in chapters 2, 3, and 4. But in our passage today, he begins with what we might think of as something rather trivial favoritism look again with me at James chapter two verse one my brothers and sisters do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism those in Christ should not show favoritism because favoritism is contradictory to our faith Years ago, there was a study done to determine how someone's clothing affects the way others perceive him. A man was put out on the street in the business district of New York City. He was pleading for cash, saying, I've lost my wallet. I need money for a taxi to the airport. Here's my name, address, and phone number. If you'll give me the cash, as soon as I get home, I'll repay you. The same man went out on the street on consecutive days wearing the same suit in the same the same place, the same street. And he used that same line on uh, on day after day. The only difference was on one day he wore a beige coat overcoat because At that particular time, beige was the rage, and on the other day, the next day, he would wear a black coat, overcoat. Guess what the results were? Do you think maybe because beige was the rage, he got a little bit more money on the days he wore the beige overcoat? No. He got double on the days he wore beige on the days he wore black and that that is simple favoritism and people play favorites even Christians we tend to judge by appearance but God doesn't in one Samuel in chapter 16 verse 7 we find this man looks on the outward appearance but the Lord looks on the heart God does not play favorites impartiality is a divine attribute. Now maybe we don't think of it that way. That's not one of the attributes of God that pops into mind right away. But maybe it should. So let's explore this attribute of impartiality just a bit. In the Old Testament we find that in God there is no uh, partiality. In Deuteronomy 10 verse 17 we read this, for the Lord your God is the God of gods and the Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, who does not show partiality nor take a bribe. Second Chronicles chapter 19 says virtually the same thing. Now we also find in the Old Testament that God's desire for his people, indeed his command to his people, is to be impartial. Again, in Deuteronomy, in chapter 1, verse 17, and this is Moses recounting how he took his father-in-law's advice to appoint leaders over the people of Israel. Now, Frank took us through that from um, Exodus chapter 18 just last week. But listen to Moses recounting that event. Then I ordered your judges at that time saying, Hear the cases between your fellow countrymen and judge righteously between a person and his fellow countrymen or the stranger who is with him. You are not to show partiality in judgment. You shall hear the small and the great alike. You are not to be afraid of any person, for the judgment is God's. And that same message shows up again in Deuteronomy 16. In Leviticus 19, in Proverbs 24, and again in Proverbs 28, and on and on. There are more and more verses that give us that same message. At the same time, we should also be aware that God judges those who practice favoritism. And in Malachi uh, chapter 2, verse 9, God is speaking to the, the Levites, to the priests, and he's calling them out. So I have caused you to be despised and humiliated before all the people, because you have not followed my ways. You have shown partiality in matters of the law. Well, okay, that's the Old Testament. What about the New Testament? Well, this theme of impartiality continues on in the New Testament. In Acts 10, verse 34, we find Peter saying, I most certainly understand now that God is not one to show partiality, but in every nation the one who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. You see, God is impartial in extending saving grace. In Romans 2, starting in verse 9, we see that God is impartial in distributing judgment. There will be tribulation and distress for every soul of mankind who does evil, for the Jew first and also for the Greek, but glory, honor, and peace to everyone who does what is good, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for there is no partiality with God. We also find no favoritism with God concerning social or economic status. Paul, in Ephesians chapter 6, writes, knowing that Whatever good thing each one does, he will receive this back from the Lord, whether slave or free. And masters do the same things to them and give up threatening, knowing that both their master and yours is in heaven and there is no partiality with him. This spirit of impartiality permeates even to church discipline. Paul describes this in 1 Timothy chapter 5. Do not accept an accusation against an elder except on the basis of two or three witnesses. Those who continue in sin rebuke in the presence of all so that the rest will also be fearful of sinning. I solemnly exhort you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of his chosen angels to maintain these principles without bias doing nothing out of a spirit of partiality. Okay, Yahweh, he's consistent through the Old Testament, he's consistent through the New Testament, but what about Jesus? Well, check out Matthew chapter 22, verse 16, where we see the Pharisees sent their disciples to him, that is, to Jesus, along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are truthful, And teach the way of God in truth, and do not care what anyone thinks, for you are not partial to anyone. Even Jesus' enemies knew that he was impartial. Now, partiality, we we know, it's an obvious problem in the world. It's equally obvious from scripture that God is impartial. And that he desires his people to be impartial. So favoritism shouldn't be a problem in the church, right? Well, no. Too often it is. So James gives us an example here. Set in the church. And he calls us to test our faith objectively. Evaluating whether we exhibit favoritism. Pick up with me. In verse 2 of James, chapter 2, for if a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring and is dressed in bright clothes, and a poor man in dirty clothes also comes in, and you pay special attention to the one who is wearing the bright clothes and say, you sit here in a good place. And you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down by my footstool. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? Well, let's examine this situation. First, let's look at what we don't know. We don't know what kind of meeting this was, but it it seems like it's some kind of church meeting. We don't know whether either of both of these men were known within the assembly. We don't know whether one or the other or both of them were regular attenders we don't know whether one or both of them were believers but what we do know is that two guys came into a meeting and one is dressed in the rags of poverty and the other has on the fine clothes and gold rings of wealth now these gold rings are significant because they see they're showing that this guy is really well off The upper crust of Jewish society at this time wore rings a lot but they were almost always rings of silver gold was very uncommon and to have multiple gold rings that was up there we also know that the the well-dressed man got preferential treatment didn't he? he got the good seat and we know that the the man who was dressed in rags was told to find a place on the floor and to be out of the way. So what's the issue here? Is it the clothes? No, there's, there's no sin in wearing shabby clothes or wearing finery. There's Is it that one man got a good seat and the other didn't? No, there's there's nothing in... Um, having a seat or not having a seat. The sin here is in not seeing the true value of either one of these men. The value of the rich man was inflated based on how he looked. He appeared to have something to offer. Maybe he would make a donation. Maybe we could curry some kind of favor from him. But the value of the poor man was deflated simply based on how he looked. He appeared to have nothing to offer. But the true value of anyone is in their soul. That's what God looks at. That's what he's interested in. Then that's what we should see. Not the meaningless outward appearances. And here's the kicker, the value of the rich man was exactly equal to the value of the poor man in God's sight. Failure to consider a person's true value results in favoritism, it results in prejudice, it results in partiality and discrimination it results in judgment made with wrong intent. I think we could say that the the root of such judgment is basically selfishness. When we do this, we end up being just like the world, catering to the prominent, the powerful, and the rich, while at the same time demeaning the poor and the common. James begins the next section of our text with, listen, my beloved brothers and sisters, in verse 5. Now, often when James says, my beloved, or my brothers and sisters, he's getting ready to make a significant point. And I think that's exactly the case here. Pick up with me in verse 5. Listen, my beloved brothers and sisters, did God not choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Is it not the rich who oppress you and personally drag you into court? Do they not blaspheme the good name by which you have been called? So this section is about The choice of the poor and the charges against the rich. And James gives us four rhetorical questions to lead us through this this section. Didn't God choose the poor? Well, yes, he did. And that's consistent throughout history. Think back to Israel. Slaves in Egypt, the least among the nations and yet they were God's choice to be his people or how about most of the early church they were poor poor folks right Um, Paul makes that clear in 1st Corinthians chapter 1 uh, where he says um, in starting in verse 26 Consider your calling, brothers and sisters, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world, and God has chosen the weak things of the world, and the insignificant things of the world, and the despised. Those are the ones God has chosen. Now, that all doesn't mean that God doesn't uh, save the rich, there are quite a few wealthy people that are mentioned in Scripture. Um, think of Abram when he left Ur, left home. He was pretty well off. He had flocks and servants, and, and uh, God certainly increased his wealth as he sojourned in the, in the promised land, but he didn't start out poor. Um, then there's Job, the top of the Fortune 500 of his time. David, David was uh, pretty well off, too, as king of Israel. If we jump to the New Testament, what about Joseph of Arimathea, a man who could afford a a pretty ritzy tomb? Um, There was Cornelius, one of the first Gentile converts to Christ. He was a well-off guy. And Lydia, Priscilla, and Aquila, they had churches in their home, they had businesses. They were not poor by any stretch. Um, and consider that Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter six, to remind the rich in the church to share with the poor in the church. Now, if we think about this very long, the question comes up: Why? Did God choose the poor? Well, James doesn't answer that question for us, but thinking about it a little bit, we might consider that maybe it was for God's greater glory somehow. Perhaps the poor were more ready to rely on God. Their their need for him was much more apparent. And because of their need, maybe these poor people see God more clearly on the other side um, maybe the rich are prone to rely on their own resources and not turn to God maybe the rich are distracted too easily by their own wealth they're distracted from the things of God kind of fun to think about but we don't really know the answer now, James turns our attention to the sins of the rich believers. What? Ri- sorry, rich unbelievers. Um, it's clear in the text that they are unbelievers. And these these sins that they commit against the poor Christians. So the second question, don't the rich exploit you? They're doing to you what you're doing to the poor. Oh, and by the way, aren't you by and large, poor too. Now in James' day, there was a small number of landowners who were buying up more and more of the property and driving the individual farmers out, sending them deeper into poverty. And there were rich merchants who were forcing their competitors out of business, kind of the mom and pop shop folks. and then, don't they drag you into court? See, the, the wealthy could use their influence to force people into court ha- so that they would have the pretense of legality. They could get away with throwing the poor people off their land. They charged high interest rates and they imposed fines for non payment. And they used the courts to force the poor people to forfeit their inheritance. They, they refused them the right of redemption that God had said they should have. So all of these things are in direct disobedience to God's word. And finally, James asks, don't the rich slander the name of Christ? Now, I'm not sure exactly what is meant here. Perhaps the rich Jews... Reviled the Christians for worshiping Christ or or reviled them for their claims about who Christ is or for their determination to follow his teachings. So we can sum all of this up uh, by going back to our our three elements of true religion. Um, Remember those? The marks of true Christianity from the end of chapter 1? True religion helps the poor, those in need. Favoritism insults them. It dishonors them, even though God chose the poor to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom. The church is the one community on this earth where everyone should get equal treatment. So when we play favorites, we're actually denying very gospel that we claim saves us. That shouldn't be. True, true, true religion is also marked by a heart that's guarded from the world, from being stained or polluted. In favoritism, it's a totally worldly thing. Favoritism rejects God's decision to treat the rich and the poor the same. Favoritism forgets God's will and seeks to gain favor from the rich by giving them special treatment. On top of that, favoritism is foolish because the rich are the very ones who are exploiting, who are litigating against, and who are slandering the very ones who try to curry their favor. And finally, true religion controls the tongue. But favoritism uses words to harm the poor, insulting and dishonoring them. James makes it clear that this seemingly small sin of favoritism violates all three elements or marks of true Christianity. James chose a piercing example, didn't he? Do you play favorites? How do you react when you meet a shabbily dressed person? Maybe they smell bad. Do you recoil, even if he's a brother in Christ? When we're caught off guard, do we tend to go by appearances? Does this mean that we fail the test of true religion? Do you play favorites? This simple question humbles us. Recognizing our failure drives us to humble ourselves before the Lord. A little further on in James, in chapter 4, he says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourself before the Lord, and he will lift you up. Humbling ourselves might be as simple as telling God something like this. Lord, I'm a sinner, and I can't stop sinning. I play favorites. I ignore the needy, and I'm stained by the world. I don't control my tongue. Lord, I fail the tests of true Christianity. I fail every day. My only hope is in your mercy. For Jesus' sake. Please forgive me. Approaching God in humility is a good thing. It's good for everyone. It's good for anyone. It's good for you if you're not sure that you're right with God. Maybe you hope you're going to heaven because you try really hard to be good. But what we see here is that no matter how hard you try, you can't be good enough to earn heaven. But God, God is so gracious. He's gracious enough to give heaven to those who repent and believe. It's also good for those who know and love Jesus to come humbly before their God, to confess sin and to rest in the gospel again. We never pass all the tests. Jesus, though, has passed them for us. We're part of his family. In the gospel, he has cared for us in our poverty and in our distress. By his grace, we are being conformed to his likeness. Well, in this next section... James makes it clear that breaking even the smallest part of the law is the same as breaking all of the law. It's all or nothing. There is no partial credit. Let's read in uh, verse 8. If, however, you are fulfilling the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as violators. For whoever keeps the whole law, yet stumbles in one point, has become guilty of all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but do murder, you have become a violator of the law. James identifies here the command to love your neighbor as yourself as the royal law. And it really is a royal law in in at least two senses. It certainly is the law of the kingdom. Yahweh told Moses in Leviticus 19, You shall not do injustice in judgment. You shall not show partiality to the poor nor give preference to the great, but you are to judge your neighbor fairly. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. It's also the law of the king, the law of Jesus. For Jesus said, love your neighbor. And then by his incarnation, he became our neighbor. And he showed us just how to love. In Ephesians 5, verse 2, Paul tells us that when we obey this royal law, we live a life of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. Jesus, wa- <coughs> Jesus walked his talk. Shouldn't we? Do you see how favoritism transgresses the law to love your neighbor? Now, maybe you've heard someone say something like this. We don't need to live by laws. We just need to love one another. Maybe you've even thought that yourself. It it sounds really good, and it would be really good if, if you could truly love everyone all the time. Such a person wouldn't need the law. In reality, I know I'm not that person. And I also know, I'm pretty sure, I've never met that person, at least not yet. In reality, law and love are coherent. They form a united whole. They're they're consistent. The law tells us how to love, and love fulfills the law. Love has primacy within the law, not over the law. That's a quote from Daniel Doriani in his commentary on James. It, it's really, really good. Let me read it to you again. The law tells us how to love, and love fulfills the law. Love has primacy within the law, not over the law. The law embodies the love command. When we honor our parents, we demonstrate our love for them. When we love our spouse, by remaining faithful. We love our neighbors by respecting their property, by telling the truth to them and about them, by desiring good for them rather than coveting their possessions. Love your neighbor as yourself. This is the royal law that stands at the very core of God's law. And this royal law forbids favoritism. James points out here that if we show favoritism, we've broken the law. Now, we might view favoritism as a little sin. But little or not, if we break one part of the law, we're as guilty as if we've broken the whole law. James connects these little sins directly to our obedience to God. But that's not where we want to go, is it? Our intuition says obedience to the law. Surely it's not all or nothing. Intuition says law keeping can be partial. But this intuition is wrong. Disobedience violates the will of God and it also violates his character for all his laws reflect his characters. We shouldn't lie because God tells the truth. We shouldn't covet because God is generous. Every sin is an affront to the character of God. When when someone violates just one law, He's accountable for the whole of God's law because God gave the whole law. If the very God of the universe says, don't murder, then deliberately murderous thoughts, words, or deeds violate God's will. Even more, they violate his character, his person, his role as Lord of lords, Obedience becomes all or nothing. Mistreatment of a neighbor breaks all laws for neighbors because all laws are meant for their good. And yet we still want to keep on saying, "Ah, law, law keeping, that can be partial. Isn't it better to eat a little breakfast than to have none at all? Isn't it better to have a a partially cleaned bedroom than one that's in total disarray? Isn't it better to obey most of the law most of the time rather than to obey none of it any of the time? Partial obedience has to be better than none at all. Well, you know, there is a grain of truth in that. There, there is a sense in which a sincere but failed attempt at obedience is better than no attempt at all. But James is really trying to get at a different point here. Using murder and adultery as an example, James shows the danger in being content with partial obedience. Here's the problem if people pick and choose what they're going to obey, they are their own God. All of God's law is united by one thing. All of his commands are tied together by this one principle, God gave them. If we obey the laws that seem right to us, or if we obey only the laws that suit our purposes, then we're not really obeying God himself. Instead, we're making ourselves the final authority. Now we might consult God, and get some pointers from him. But we are still the masters of our lives. We're still sitting on the throne of our heart. Do you see it? Obedience is all or nothing. There's no partial credit. Some people like to think of obedience as a a pile of good deeds. And as the pile gets bigger, um, it, it gets bigger with each time you do a good deed. And it gets smaller with each time you sin. The more good deeds and the larger the pile, then the more pleased God is going to be. But James sees obedience like a sheet of glass. And disobedience is a brick that's thrown through that glass. One single destructive act shatters the whole thing. As we come to the end of our passage, James tells us, pick up in verse 12, so speak and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of freedom. For judgment will be merciless to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. The law will be our judge. Why? Well, because God gave the law and breaking the law is going against God's will. But did you notice it's called the law of freedom? We usually think of laws as restrictive, forbidding us from doing what we desire. But there's a freedom that restricts, that binds, that enslaves. We're, We're free to do drugs like cocaine But cocaine enslaves its users, turning them into addicts. We may be free to divorce a spouse, but divorce often binds people to loneliness, to poverty, and to even more broken relationships. But beyond these worldly kind of troubles, sin leads inevitably to judgment. And what judgment? Merciless judgment to those who have not shown mercy to others. Ouch. James, you're telling us what to do, and then you're telling us that we're going to fail, and we can't even get partial credit. All of this could easily drive us to despair. So what should we do? Well, let's follow the logic. Believers must obey God's law because they are God's laws. But then James says, judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who's not been merciful. And it seems like the gospel's missing here. God commands that we show mercy, but where is his mercy? Well, it's right there at the end, isn't it? Mercy triumphs over judgment. James doesn't explain this any further at this point. He comes back to it later in chapter 4. But for now, let's remember he's writing to believers, people who know Jesus as he is put forward in the Gospels. Jesus, the one who who was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. Believers fail, yet by faith in Christ, the Redeemer, God's mercy triumphs over the judgment we deserve. In Christ, mercy triumphs over justice, over judgment. As believers, when we strive to obey and yet fail, the final word will always be grace. We're all sinning, failing Christians, but we never need to despair. We never need to doubt. The one who demands mercy shows mercy. And for those who are his, mercy is always his last word. In these few verses, James has reminded us that God is, by divine nature, completely impartial. And he's given us several sharp warnings about sin. Even a common little sin, like favoritism, has big consequences. For by such a sin, we fail the tests of true religion. We are warned that God's law, it's not a buffet. We have no right to pick and choose which commands to obey. When we reject a command because it doesn't suit us, we reject the Lord who gave that law. Make no mistake, these are serious matters. And yet, God's grace is greater than than our sin the gospel is good news to sinners to the unworthy to the poor in spirit yes God is pleased when we obey and yet for all those who repent and believe he loves and forgives even when we fail him time after time grace grace God's grace 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 that is greater than all our sin. Would you stand and let's pray. Oh God, oh Lord, the old hymn was right. Your grace is greater than all our sin. Heavenly Father, may we see others as you see them and not through the sin of our own favoritism. Like you, may we see a person made in the very image of God, a person whose soul is so valuable that you sent your son to redeem that soul, paying an infinite price for it. Oh, Lord, if there are any here today who don't realize their worth, who don't know how precious they are to you, I pray that would become clear to them in a gut-wrenching, in a, in a life-changing, in a soul-saving way. And if not today, Lord, then soon, very soon. For those who know the risen Christ as Lord and Savior, help us to objectively evaluate our own walk with you. May we identify any favoritism in our individual lives. And may we guard against favoritism collectively as your body, the church. Oh, God, we want to live so that we display all the signs of true Christianity. The desire is there. And yet we fail, Lord, for we are weak in our flesh. Because we fail, Lord, we deserve judgment. But because we are in Christ, we receive mercy. Praise be to you, O God. In Christ, mercy triumphs over judgment. Our hope is sustained. Our inheritance is secure. For your grace is greater than all our sin. Oh, precious Lord, we love you. We give you our thanks. We give you our praise. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.